Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's conference call. I'm Scott Kersner, editor and co-founder of Innovation Leader, and we're thrilled to have you join us. For those of you joining us for the first time, I want to say welcome to Innovation Leader. Uh, we like to say that we are relentlessly focused on providing resources that large companies can use to improve their innovation programs, understand the latest innovation techniques, and compare what they're doing and their performance with other large companies. Our resources include conference calls and webcasts like this one today, as well as research, reports, downloadable templates, independent case studies, roundtables, and we also do exclusive visits to corporate innovation labs where you can see how other big companies are pursuing innovation. And you can check out all those resources at innovationleader.com. Uh, our guest today, Alexander Osterwalder, is the lead author of the international bestseller Business Model Generation. He's a passionate entrepreneur, he's a globe-trotting speaker, uh, and he co-founded Strategizer, a software company that specializes in tools and content for strategic management and innovation. Uh, Alex also invented the Business Model Canvas, the tool uh, that many companies use to design, test, build, and manage business models. It's used by companies like Coca-Cola, P&G, MasterCard, Ericsson, Lego, and 3M. Uh, and I also want to mention that Alex is running some upcoming workshops in cities like Berlin, Tokyo, London, and Boston between now and June. Um, Alex, it's great to have you joining us from Switzerland today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I guess maybe um, a good question to start with is just how are you spending your time and what are you thinking about uh, in March 2019? What's, what's new for you? <laughs> there are two main things um, I spend time on. One is uh, the upcoming book that we're working on for uh, the end of the year, January, which uh, we arrogantly call the Invincible Company, because uh, we, you know, and when I say we, it's my co-author, our team at Strategizer, we really believe that companies that constantly reinvent themselves, they're hard to catch, they're hard to beat, they're hard to disrupt. And there are very few of those, so I'm spending a lot of my time on that book project, uh, with our team of researchers, designers, etc., because we want to push the boundaries when it comes to business small innovation. It's about half of my time. The other half of my time, I really spend uh, on developing Strategizer to help uh, established companies really get to the next level when it comes to innovation, because it's not an easy job. So I'd love to talk a little bit about business model innovation, because we hear a lot of companies um, that kind of acknowledge that they should be doing business model innovation. They may know about the existence of the business model canvas. Uh, maybe they've read the book, but it just still feels like there are some barriers to, you know, breaching the idea that, hey, maybe we need to get good at this thing called business model innovation. What, what do you see as kind of the big um, barriers? And then maybe we can talk about what are some ways that companies uh, kind of go at those barriers. So I think the first barrier is this myth that innovation equals technology, right? That you have to, you know, be a technology innovator to be able to innovate. And we see that pretty differently that, you know, there's a lot of opportunities around value propositions. So sometimes it can involve technology, sometimes it doesn't. And just that misunderstanding what innovation even is. You know, it's already a broad term. There are different types of innovation, incremental process innovation, business model innovation. I think that the number one thing is there's a lack of understanding and that myth that all innovation is related to technology. 
And here my favorite example is actually a little bit of an older one, which is the Nintendo Wii. When they launched their game console, the Wii was actually technology-wise an inferior platform. You know, the 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 Xbox, at the, the the Sony PlayStation 2 at the time, the Xbox, they were superior technology-wise. What was different with Nintendo is that they targeted a, a new segment, casual gamers, with a business model that was slightly different because it made money on the consoles and on the royalties. So the opportunity for innovation is a lot broader than just business models. It's really than just the technology. It's business models, it's value propositions. So that's number one. Number two, I think the big you know, um, um, obstacle here is that companies are focused on execution. They're focused on running their business, on running a business model. And, and often, you know, leadership has kind of, in quotes, grown up with uh, or grown through the ranks with an established business model. And they're not used to continuously reinventing themselves. So there's a whole new breed of companies like Amazon, but now also some other ones that I can talk about a little bit later that say, well, you know, business models expire. We need to reinvent ourselves or at least cr create new growth engines. So I think the, big, the biggest obstacle is number one, understanding what this is, business model innovation. And then number two, you know, really focusing on the future and not just on the present, which sounds a bit trivial. And, you know, a lot of people talk about it, but, you know, can we get companies to shift towards not just managing the present, but inventing the future? And that does require that leadership spends at least 20 to 40% of their time on inventing the future. And most senior leaders are actually more concerned with managing the present or fending off, you know, it's not even always their fault, you know, fending off uh, um, hostile investors that want short-term re returns. So we really have to do something, I think, to reinvent companies. And maybe the last point, you know, why should we even do that? Some people say, well, it's just the life cycle of companies. Uh, some of them disappear. That's easy to say when, you know, you're sitting in a webinar or sitting at a comfortable table. But when a large player, take GE for example, is going away or changing substantially, you know, 10,000s of jobs are at stake. And who has to pay that? It's, you know, the government and the society and the people who are working at a company. So I think there's almost a moral obligation to a certain extent to help large companies reinvent themselves so we can create some stability for the people who work there. Okay, there's a lot of good stuff to dive into there. I mean, one is just the CEO's time, and that's something that we at Innovation Leader have written about a fair amount, you know, that CEOs like to tell you that they're spending uh, 10 or 15% of their time thinking about the, you know, box three or horizon three, and the reality probably is most people would say it's, it's nowhere near that. So I, I don't know, you know, are there ways that you think, uh, you know, should it be the board's? It's hard to imagine that the employees could nudge a CEO to say, I should be a little bit more focused on that far out horizon or on innovating our business model. Is it the responsibility of the board to do that? So I think it really is context specific. So, um, of course, it is the responsibility of the board traditionally. But, you know, I, I would start with the leadership. So if you take a company like Amazon, obviously it's it's easier because uh, you know Jeff Bezos is is one of the most important shareholders, um, that that makes things a lot easier. But there are examples like Unilever 
where Paul Polman actually changed the, you know, the way investors and the board kind of looked at the company and he said, you know, we're going to grow, but we're also going to relentlessly invest in, in the environment. We're going to create positive growth that is not at the expense of the environment, but, you know, can live in harmony with the environment. And that came from the leadership. So I remember this anecdote, I was talking to a venture capitalist and, and he said, well, isn't that a little bit of a, you know, shareholder, like a, a revolt into, because shareholders are the owners. So could the, could the CEO, is that even legal that the CEO takes this uh, lead? Well, you know, I do believe the interest of the shareholders is, you know, to long-term growth. Now, of course, you have often shareholders who are interested in short-term results, and in particular, the activist kind of hedge funds. So, so we have to look at this, you know, very context-specific. Is it the board's responsibility? Sure. Um, is it the leadership's responsibility? Yes, I also think so. Is it the investor's responsibility? I also think so. Because um, the investors at the end of the day, you know, have the majority of the votes. And, and what's a bit tragic these days is that uh, activist investors with a very small amount of shares can really influence, you know, two to three percent. They can influence the strategy of a, of a corporation, which then pushing them towards the short term, simply because there are a lot of inactive investors, you know, the pension funds in Europe or the uh, wealth funds, not all of them, the, the uh, sovereign wealth funds, not all of them are, are really um, in, in, in their investments very active, like maybe the Norwegian funds. So it's very co context specific. I do think all of these um, 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 sh stakeholders have an interest in the long-term growth. So it'd be good if we could kind of show how this can be done so people can take the next steps board members, leaders, shareholders. So there's already one question uh, from a listener and I encourage everyone, uh, if you'd like to use the GoToWebinar question interface to jump in, or you can email editor at innovationleader.com and we'll get to uh, as many questions as we can. So a listener wants to know, should there be two CEOs at the company, one for the current business and another for new models? I guess to expand that question a little bit, you know, what are some of the ways structurally, organizationally, incentive-wise that companies approach the challenge of business model innovation successfully? So I, I, I like that approach in the sense that we wrote a, a Harvard Business Review blog post about that and we called, you know, it called it the chief entrepreneur and the chief executive officer should have the same amount of power. Uh, one looks at the future and one looks at the present. Now, titles actually don't matter that much. I think the, the big thing that we want to look at is how do we give innovation power? That could be the CEO, you know, take, uh, take Amazon. It's the CEO who really looks at the future. In other companies, you probably want to create that role and, you know, have them both to report to, to the board. I think the, the, the thing that's really lacking is power um, in innovation. There are a lot of activities. There are even resources. The question is, how do we give innovation power? You know, putting somebody at the head of such a, uh, growth engine, you know, or, or a, a part of the organization that is entirely focused on growth, with the sufficient with the sufficient power, that's a very uh, strong way forward. And I like to say that you know you could have somebody focused on operations and and the existing managing the present, somebody focused on the future. 
And when you have business models that get to a certain level, the entity that's focused on the future hands over that business unit to those who are good at managing and, and scaling uh, you know, existing business models. So it's a dynamic kind of a, um, split of the role where there is one part of the organization with somebody heading that part of the organization that can really, really drive growth. And when those new growth engines are mature enough, let go, right? Because um, then there, it's not a growth problem anymore. It's a management problem. Now, can that be done by the same person? Um, I think that is that is a pretty rare. Um, some entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos and before Steve uh, Jobs uh, were able to do that, or Bill Gates. I think that is pretty rare. So having you know somebody at the head of the the uh, innovation engine, who we could call the chief entrepreneur equipped with sufficient power to stand up you know uh, besides the the larger part of the organization revenue wise that is the important uh, challenge to solve okay so another listener points out that it it sounds like you're thinking about business model innovation primarily taking place at the corporate level um, and he wants to know is it wrong to think about it at a business unit and product level as well no, so that's absolutely correct. It's a good assessment and a good question. You want to have different types of innovation at every level. The reason why you do want to have a separate entity, you know, still integrated, I'll get to that, but an entity that's that's uh, focused on very different business models that is independent of the business units is very simple. Why do you want that? Because the existing business model of a business unit will generally trump anything that is new and that looks different. So when you do product innovation, new value propositions within the existing business model, you're, you know, you're better off doing that within a business unit, still having a team that's specialized um, on innovation because, you know, managing a business and creating a business, those are two different professions. So thinking that somebody who, you know, was very good at managing 100 million, 1 billion or $5 billion business it's not necessarily somebody who can build a business. So you still need people who are specialized, but those could live within a business unit, but don't expect those people to come up with a new business model because it's a lot harder to do that within the living business model. So you wanna have different types of innovation with a similar skills actually, but different types of innovation living in different parts of the organization. Sometimes people say, yeah, but innovation needs to be everywhere. Well, yes and no. So, of course, you need to have people who are entrepreneurial and innovative and try to improve processes or daily work processes. That everybody can focus on that, but that's very different from building, you know, the next growth engine of a multi-billion dollar business. So, there are different types of innovation, and you want to boost and foster the different types of innovation in the different parts of the organization. So I don't think one excludes the other. While you have innovation or you should kind of push an innovation unit within a business uh, division, you also want to have something separate because otherwise you're not going to see business model innovation emerge. And an important one there is that that shouldn't be a two separate entity either because otherwise you just have entrepreneurs in chains, which will be a lot slower because they have to live within the corporate processes. You want to give them access to uh, not just financial resources, but also brand or customers, et cetera. So while we need to have you know, this, this innovation engine 
that's separate, it also needs to be integrated and have legitimacy to draw on existing resources. Again, like customers or access to customers, brand, patents, you know, supply chains, etc. So it's not a trivial problem to solve. It does require that we uh, start looking at the org chart in a slightly different way and infuse different types of innovation in different parts of the organization. And all of these different types of innovation require different skill set. Again, it's diff it's it's not the same, you know, changing your sales process and being innovative there or creating an entirely new growth engine that is supposed to grow to over a billion dollar business. So uh, there's a really interesting question about uh, kind of, I think what mostly we've been talking about so far, in-house innovation or internal innovation versus innovating by acquisition. Uh, and so Vinny asks, have big traditional companies essentially given up on in-house innovation and are instead choosing to go the startup collaboration or acquisition route, isn't that a better option given how hard it is for a company to change its established system? So I'm curious, Alex, what you think about those two competencies. You know, one is the ability to evaluate, uh, you know, hey, this is, if you're Unilever, hey, Dollar Shave Club seems to be growing pretty fast with a new business model versus internally trying to build, you know, trying to build or create that kind of growth uh, with your own people. Excellent question. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'd say one doesn't exclude the other. So, you know, when when you're looking at a challenge, there's not just one answer because this is, you know, a difficult challenge. So you want to use the whole tool set. In some situations, you want to acquire. In some situations, you want to invest. In some situations, you want to grow. So I, I don't believe in, you know, the, the truth that you do one or the other. If you take the way that Amazon innovates, it's a lot of homegrown and then punctually, you know, very big acquisitions. So if we kind of simplify it down, if you take uh, Tencent, uh, for example, it's a very different type of innovation. They invest in many, many startups and that works as well. So there's not one truth. I think you need to really master the whole tool set and all of those actions. And it's one of the things that we're working on in our upcoming book we call this business model portfolio actions, where you look at all of the different actions from inventing, pivoting, killing, all the way to uh, mergers and acquisitions. And you know, sometimes uh, we think of acquisition always as the big thing. Maybe if you have an internal kind of startup that does customer discovery, learns about what's important in the market, and then realizes, oh, we need this new technology, maybe they will make a smaller acquisition in the tens or $50 million to complement some of the technology you know, um, um, weak spots or blind spots that they have to go faster. So I think you need to master the whole range. There's not one that is right and the other is wrong, that you need to master all. The other thing I'd like to add to that is that, okay, in the past, it was maybe easier to acquire than it will be in the future. There are more and more companies, they don't even want to be acquired. They don't even need to go you know, do an IPO because there's so much money around um, with the vision fund you know, from SoftBank and so. It's easier for companies to grow to a size where it's getting harder and harder to, to actually you know, acquire them. And if you are, I don't know, Nestle or Unilever, you know, how many times can you afford those big, big acquisitions? So I think we need to look at the full range and be able to act strategically according to the right context. The last thing that I'd add is 
even when you do acquisitions, big or small, you'll make better acquisitions when you've learned internally. If you haven't done the customer discovery internally in the market with stakeholders, you'll make very bad acquisitions because you haven't learned enough to understand what's really required. So I don't think one excludes the other. So I'm really in favor of mastering the whole tool set and then applying the right action in the right moment. So there are a couple of questions about metrics and I'll try to combine them, but um, you know, I'm guessing that you know, or we know that one of the metrics that companies want to look at to see if this whole portfolio of tools is delivering value is revenue is, you know, are you building new business models, launching new products and services that that are generating revenue? Um, are there other metrics um, that you think are valuable and worth tracking to know whether you're uh, using these tools effectively, maybe maybe at the you know, more quarterly or one year standpoint, even if you might not have revenue for two or three years? I think it's crucial to look at those metrics. And two years ago, we started a project with uh, five multinationals, of which two of them I can talk about was Bayer and Bosch. And the goal there was how do we measure reduction of risk of an idea pre-revenue? So, you know, we looked around what exists there because I firmly believe in not reinventing the wheel. We didn't see any kind of pre-revenue metrics that were satisfying to understand, to measure, are we getting closer to, you know, a substantial business? So that means, are we reducing the risk of an idea and the possibility that this is a really, you know, um, 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 interesting opportunity to pursue? Not just a you know a spreadsheet. Sometimes people say, yeah, yeah, we tested that idea. We made a spreadsheet. Not so much, right? So what you want is a validated spreadsheet where you did some some uh, willingness to pay conversations. You need pricing experiments, and you have an understanding of the cost structure, and you tested that with stakeholders. So you really get to very strong validation. So we started looking at that. How do you measure the reduction of risk and uncertainty? pre-revenue because once revenue starts everything gets a lot easier and then we're looking at product market fit and the whole kind of venture capital metrics that that come once you are starting to grow but pre-revenue is where it's really hard so we took this concept from design where you look at three aspects um, desirability feasibility and viability Desirability is do customers want it feasibility is can we build it and viability is can we make more money you know, from it than it costs. Once you look at those, you ask yourself, what's the evidence that we have, not the spreadsheet, not the PowerPoint deck, but what's the real evidence that we have from experimentation that shows we've reduced the risk that we're start that we're working on something nobody wants. So that is something we're now doing very systematically um, at companies like Bayer or Bosch, because it's important to understand to make good investment decisions. Because one of the big, I think, myths, there are a couple of myths in innovation. Now that the lean startup movement is popular, people think they can pivot their way to success. It's actually not true. The ratio is 250 to 1. If you want, you know, an outsized growth, a unicorn, you would have to invest. And this comes from the, from the early stage investment um, research. You'd have to invest in 250 ideas. So imagine that. What does that mean? That means you need to invest as a company in 100 to 200 projects, very small amounts of money, give those teams you know, $5,000, $10,000 so they can start to explore a little bit, 
and then you only invest in 30% follow-up after maybe three months. We call those consecutive sprints that look like a funnel. You start with small investments. In the venture world, we call this seed funding. And then after three months, you follow up with new investments in those projects that look pro most promising. And what happens is that when you do that and you follow these metrics of risk reduction and you don't invest in how good the idea looks, but you invest in the evidence, the best ideas will bubble up because you can't pick the winner. Not even you know very experienced venture capitalists can pick the winners. You need to invest in those projects that are most reducing risks and you'll do that in consecutive rounds, which we call metered funding in the uh, startup world, right? And we need to have that approach in uh, inside companies as well, because there's this myth that we just need to invest in the right idea. Nobody can pick the right idea, not even the best venture capitalists. So the best managers are not going to be able to do that either. So we really need to focus on metrics and the way we invest, which is very different from managing an organization. So metrics is a crucial thing because they drive behavior. Today, you know, a lot of innovation teams are judged based on the metrics of execution. Guess what? There's no chance you can win. It's actually going to kill innovation or it's killing innovation in most companies. So we need to change the way we look at innovation metrics because it's a substantially different world than the execution and management world. And we have a lot of questions from participants. I want to get to as many of those as possible. But just to follow up, I mean, the one person who tends to care most about metrics and revenue and profit margin and market share is the CFO. Um, does the CFO necessarily understand the value of experimentation and learning and um, everything you've been talking about? You know, hey, we're we're understanding how to de-risk um, our ideas, or is that not necessarily true and some C CFOs are just like hey is there a billion dollar you know is this going to be a billion dollar business or not that's all I care about yeah so it's a real challenge and I, I'd say it's one of the last barriers that we might not have really cracked yet and and the challenge is very simple that you know if you want to do investments right when it comes to innovation you need to accept that there are going to be a lot of projects that go nowhere but it'll be small amounts of money, right? You know, let's say, as I said, let's take the ratio of 100. You need to invest in 100 teams. You give them maybe $5,000 to start and uh, the right tools. Well, you only invest in 30%. So you could say, well, what about the other 70%? Those were failures, correct? And then, of course, you know, the traditional CFO looking at this through the lens of execution will say, well, let's not do that anymore and let's figure out which, you know, the 70% that we don't invest in because we don't want to invest in failures. But that's the that's that's the hard part because you can't find those 30% if you haven't invested in the 100% to figure out which, you know, 30% right. actually right. go. So that's yeah, the challenge. Just, just and tell, that's, me which, just tell me which of your ideas are going to work before we try them, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, if you can figure that out. Yeah. And that's where there where you need to speak the language of the CFO and start taking it from that angle. So when you start talking portfolio and you say, let's not look at the investment at the project level, but let's look at the return at the portfolio level, then we're starting to get somewhere. So I think, you know, to a CFO, you don't want to 
talk about innovation and how innovation works. No, you want to use the language of, of the financial world and world, and, and then you start, talk about options and portfolios and diversification of risk, and you'll get a little bit closer. But the challenge still remains. I remember doing this with a, one of the largest European companies. We were talking with the innovation leaders, and the big challenge was, well, how are we going to kind of sell this to the CFO? So this is remains a challenge because CFO's roles today are tailored to managing a company and keeping it safe, right? So innovation is not their core. It's not on the top of their agenda. And anything that looks different from execution metrics are, you know, suspicious to them. So I do think rather than trying to change the CFO, I would prefer having a team um, under a chief entrepreneur that has the right, you know, people with the right understanding of how finance works in innovation and entrepreneurship, which would be more portfolio managers and, you know, former venture capitalists without necessarily having the venture fund approach, but having that ability. So I would prefer, you know, a, a team that is specialized in that kind of investment rather than the traditional CFO trying to, you know, move away from what is their core, which is to manage the present and the existing. So Toby wants to know uh, uh, feasibility, viability, and what was the third thing? I think it was desirability. Yes, Alex? Desirability. Desirability. Yeah. Desirability. Um, uh, so there are a bunch of questions here. Let's see if we can get to as many of them as possible. Um, Nathan wants to know, can you give us a couple examples of uh, risk-reducing metrics? So the types of metric, metrics you might use to know that you're reducing the risk related to, um, you know, a potential business idea. Yeah. So I think what's important is that people understand the difference between activity and risk reduction. So, you know, when we started looking at what some of the best companies out there that are really good at, 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 at doing innovation, but not necessarily yet very good at, at uh, measuring innovation or risk reduction, they started to count interviews. But you know, the number of interviews doesn't say very much. What you want to understand is, number one, what are the most important hypotheses that would need to be true for an idea to work? That's the uncertainty, right? So you already need to kind of shape the uncertainty and make the uncertainty explicit. So you know, people say, oh, we want to launch this product. Well, that's kind of a very big thing to test. So you want to break this product down into smaller hypotheses. Who's the customer segment? What are their jobs, pains, and gains? All these things are hypotheses. Once you have the hypothesis explicit, you start to go in and, and experiment and find evidence that you were right. Example, so I have evidence that this customer segment, you know, um, uh, mothers in North America with an income above $100,000 have, you know, 80% of them have this particular job, they have this particular pain, and I can show you the evidence because I talked to 100 of them and then we did a pricing experiment with 1,000 of them. That is evidence that one of the core hypotheses or several of the core hypotheses were um, correct and could be that they're incorrect, but you wanna show that they are correct. And once you start to have evidence you're starting to show that your hypothesis is true. And when the hypothesis is true, you reduce the risk. Now it could be, and here's where it gets tricky, it's kind of hard to explain just with words, 
maybe you started to figure out a couple of things and you you've proven a couple of hypotheses related to customers you 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 prove them true with the evidence that you have but then you get to something else and you need to pivot to a different customer segment a lot of the things that you validated are wrong again so your risk shoots back up because now you're targeting a new segment in innovation and entrepreneurship that's normal you don't find the right path immediately because it's an execution it's not an execution problem it's a search problem so what you really need to do and and this is a bit hard to you know explain in 5 minutes without any visual aids you need to quantify the risk you quantify the risk by making your hypothesis explicit getting back to what i said before you have hypothesis related to desirability does that customer exist do they have a problem are they interested in the way we want to solve it those are desirability hypotheses then you have feasibility hypothesis which is related more to the kind of what i call the backstage can we manage the technology can we make this product work can we build it at scale so we need to find evidence um, that proves that we can actually do those things that we should be able to do and then you have hypothesis related to uh, earning money, pricing, et cetera, and spending money on the cost structure, you make that explicit, you find evidence that you are right, that's when you reduce risk. And I think the biggest factor that people kind of neglect is the strength of the evidence, last aspect, very important one. You know, how many innovation teams have you guys out there who do innovation seen that say, oh yeah, this is strongly validated, we talked to 10 people. You know, just talking to 10 people is not very strong validation. When you run real pricing experiments where people didn't even realize they were involved in an experiment, they put money on the table, they prepaid or whatever, then you start to have stronger evidence. So there are a lot of things that we need to professionalize in innovation. I think it's still a little bit like a, a you know, religion where we have some core kind of beliefs and then as long as people follow those beliefs we think they're right no this is starting to be a profession like accounting so we need to quantify the, the risks with hypothesis we need to quantify the evidence that we're proving uh, finding through our experiment we need to quantify how strong that evidence is and then we're going to be taken seriously by people in the execution engine because today people throw around words like innovation accounting without actually really being as sophisticated as accounting. And I think innovation metrics is moving towards that. We're getting a lot more professional around this. So it's it's beyond kind of, you know, the, the beliefs of how you do innovation. This is becoming a profession. And I don't think there's enough understanding out there yet that this is a very different profession than managing. Business is not just business, you know, innovation and entrepreneurship is a very different type of business, very different profession than management and execution. Well, I mean, I think right, one of the I get open <laughs> Yeah, when you get a good detail-oriented metrics question. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things that's still a big question in 2019 is what is the career ladder or the career path look like for this profession, right? Because you don't necessarily see a lot of examples of innovation managers becoming directors of innovation, becoming SVPs of innovation, and you know, eventually moving into the C-suite yet, and maybe it's just it's just a matter of time. I don't know if you have a quick take on that kind of career path question, and then we can get to a couple more listener questions. Yeah, I think that's a very, very relevant question. Today, 
most people in innovation are really passionate about it and they're actually committing career suicide rather than anything else because in most um, companies innovation or let's say um, experimentation which often has failure as a consequence is still punished in most companies you can't fail and people hide failure and they try to turn something that was clearly a failure and success in companies where experimentation is at the core and innovation is at the core it's okay to fail and uh, you know one of the things that's very impressive in amazon and i think amazon you know can prove a lot of things but when it comes to innovation they're really number one <laughs> in, in the entire world you know when the ceo says amazon or our company is the best place in the world to fail that is not just a slogan it's actually true in the sense that at Amazon, they understand the value of experimentation. They understand, because the CEO talks about it in letters to shareholders, that if you already know the outcome of an experiment, is actually not an experiment, right? So when you really truly experiment, you can fail. And Jeb Bezos likes to say that, you know, failure and invention are inseparable twins. So when you can start to see that people can experiment in a smart way and you know they fail and they're not fired but they're put onto the next project that's when innovation is starting to have a very strong position and people can really truly experiment fail learn change work on the next project and and start to succeed and those successes will help them advance in in their career so i do think you know people say failure is not the goal of course not but failure is inseparable from innovation. And as long as we fire people who fail, and I'm not talking about you know, building a new warehouse or you know, ruining the supply chain, of course you should be fired. But when you're trying something new, there's no way you can know the outcome. So we need to reward innovation. We need to reward failure, or at least the risk taking, and we need to measure that. So it comes back to metrics again, as long as we punish people for failing in innovation, again, I'm not talking about execution and management, but when we fail in experimentation, we shouldn't be fired. We should be able to work on the next project. Here's a small thing you know, that we're seeing clearly at companies like uh, Bayer. They invest in, in uh, several projects per year. They're not yet at the 250 mark, but they're getting closer to that. The, the biggest challenge is for those 70% who after a sprint don't get follow-up investment for those projects, they need to teach them that that's not failure. You need to have the 100% of projects so you can invest in the 30% that are most promising. And that's not always related to how smart the team is or how good the idea was. That's related to you know just taking getting the right path of innovation. So you need to reward failure. And I know a lot of people are going to say failure is not the goal. Of course not. But if you don't reward experimentation with failure and allow people to kind of work on the next project, your, your innovators are going to leave because they don't have a choice and they're going to create their own startup or become a consultant. But if you want innovation to be a career path, you need to reward experimentation and the failure that comes with it. Uh, great. It's funny, you know, we did a we did some research earlier this year on on what happens to corporate innovators in, in terms of tenure length and what they do next. And the two things you mentioned, consulting and going into entrepreneurship, are are the two most common uh, most common next moves. 
Um, there are a few folks who asked, are there slides with this conversation? Uh, we haven't been using slides, just audio. I'm going to bring up a slide just showing kind of what's next on our calendar um, in terms of innovation leader events. And then let's try to get to um, a few last questions. Uh, you can email editor at innovationleader.com or use GoToWebinar. Um, there's one question about the distinctions between use cases and business models. Um, I find the terms are being used somewhat interchangeably, which I think is unhelpful and incomplete because use cases don't address business model fundamentals. Uh, do you want to respond to kind of that hate muddiness between yeah. what is a use case yeah, and what yeah. is a business okay. model? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll respond to that and come back maybe to the to one aspect that I haven't mentioned earlier. Um, you know, when it comes to failure. So first, if you use use case or business model, or it, it doesn't really matter that much as long as we're talking not just about uh, an idea on a spreadsheet and in a PowerPoint deck, but we're talking about testing these ideas and finding evidence that this is true, uh, you know, this is really potential, not just based on our opinion, but based on real facts from the field. This is number one where I would make a difference that you already pointed out a bit between use case and business model, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to innovate in the business model, not just products and services and price. So talking about a use case limits it to maybe a subset of innovation, saying, okay, this new product for this new market, you know, could be interesting. No, you want to really map out the business model from product, you know, channel to backstage, key resources, partners, costs, and revenues, really look at the business case and then find the evidence that proves that this business case could really work. So I like the word business case, business model works as well, as long as we don't talk about business plans, because business plans are lengthy documents that rarely have evidence. So what we want is something short where we have data that proves that we're on the road right track. And then just to connect this back to um, our conversation around experimentation, failure, and career tracks in innovation, nobody, if we take entrepreneurship as a proxy for a second, no entrepreneur succeeds the first time. And when we see people on the cover of a magazine, you know, the journalists conveniently forgot to mention that these entrepreneurs were already part of three or four startups in a different role before they created their own. So I do believe when I say entrepreneurship and innovation is a profession that you never succeed the first time. It's pretty rare. Very few people succeed the first time. You need to learn it. And it's after five, six projects. Maybe in the entrepreneurship world, you, know, you start as a developer, then as a lead in sales and marketing until you become maybe the CEO and create your own company. You need to learn this. And back to business cases, you know, the first time you'll make a lot of mistakes, you'll forget a lot of pieces when you try to validate this. Over time, you're gonna get a lot better at seeing patterns, at experimenting, at understanding the, you know, the patterns in the market with the business model opportunities. This doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't happen you know, mainly in, in, in management. So somebody who's managed a multi-billion dollar division is not necessarily rarely actually a very good innovator entrepreneur because it requires very different skills. This is not a value judgment. You know, pattern recognition where there is very, you know, confusing data is very different from managing a multi-billion dollar business. I don't think that the same profiles are, are helpful in, in, in those two different worlds. 
Let me give you a, this is the easiest question. I saved it for last since we only have a minute or two last, Chris, left. Uh, Christina would like to know, say you work for an SVP of innovation in a newly formed team that's separate from other business units. What are your suggestions for fostering quick wins in 60 days? So Christina wants to know, what would you do in the first 60 days if you had this uh, newly formed innovation team that wasn't part of a business unit? Yeah, the first thing I would actually do is check how much time the CEO spends on innovation. And if the CEO doesn't spend 20 or 40 percent of her time or his time on innovation, I'd already be very doubtful that it's worth continuing any activity. The second um, quick assessment that I would do on the first day is, is look at the agenda of the last four important meetings at the company to understand, you know, was innovation on the agenda? And if innovation wasn't on three of the on the agenda of three of those four meetings, I would actually suggest to shut down the the innovation department. And and because, was because it's not getting enough. Yeah, right. That's the depressing answer. But because you're saying it's not getting enough executive time, attention, resource, right? Correct. And and so so my you know just having been in innovation now for or worked on business model innovation for 20 years, having done this in in established companies, you know some of the best companies around the world now for 10 years. Um, I think it's very very hard when you don't have that right setup. And personally, I don't like wasting my time anymore with companies that don't start there. I think, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago, you could, you could let that go because we weren't as far. Today, we know how to do this in established organizations. So there is no excuse. I wouldn't waste my time anymore. If I was in a team like that, as, in, as a staff member, I'd leave and go to the next company where the right conditions apply. So I wouldn't waste mm -hmm. my time. It's there's no more there's no more reason to waste time because we know how a lot of these things work. It's hard, but we know a lot of the aspects of how, how to make this work. Yeah, I guess on a more optimistic note, you have this quote that I think is on your Twitter feed uh, recently that it, you say it strikes me again and again that companies already have all the innovation talent and the ideas that they need. What they don't have yet are the tools, processes, rituals, KPIs and incentives required for innovation to thrive. So that, that sort of sets up what the objective is, right? There aren't companies that, that lack smart people and good ideas. You need to just put some of these uh, tools, processes, yes. metrics, and executive, uh, executive bandwidth, executive attention in place exactly. uh, to make it all and that's, happen. That's why I would, yeah, that's why I would emphasize, so thank you for putting me back on a positive track. I don't think the, the people are missing. People are never the problem. I don't think the ideas are missing. Ideas are not the problem. Is really putting in place the right organizational structures, the right um, incentives in terms of metrics, and that is in the field of leadership. So I think a, you know a lot of the things are there. What we don't have yet is enough power in innovation. So obviously, you know, you know, I don't walk away from these challenges. I try to help leaders understand, um, you know, what this is about. And it sounds a bit arrogant to say oh, oh you know who is he to say help leaders understand you know leaders are extremely good today at managing the existing and that's what they were rewarded for for most of their career so we do need to bust a couple of innovation myths 
to unlock, and I think that's the right word, to unlock, unleash what's already in, in, in 90% of the companies. I think it's really more that than trying to bring in more people who could do this. It's really about unlocking, unleashing what's already there. So thanks for putting me back on that positive trajectory. <laughs> yeah, good note to end on. I want to thank everyone for their questions. Um, Alex, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out and joining us and answering all these questions today. It was really fantastic. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure and uh, great questions. This was fun. Cool. I'll see you in Boston soon. And before everyone signs off, I just want to mention uh, the next conversation in this series is coming up on April 3rd. It's going to be with Dr. Chris Haskell, who is head of Bayer's West Coast Innovation Center in San Francisco. You can register for that at innovationleader.com. Just click IL Live. Um, thanks again to everyone who joined us. Thanks again uh, for Alex. Uh, Charlie says, Alex, thanks for the career advice regarding the 20% threshold. Uh, Jacobo says, great webinar. Um, thanks everyone for being part of this. Uh, we hope to see you again in person or see you again online soon and have a great rest of the week. Thanks a lot.